I can't remember the last time that I found myself so deeply immersed and so profoundly moved by a book as the one that I have been reading over the last couple of days, an extraordinarily powerful book called Corrections in Ink, a memoir. It is written by a very, very gifted writer by the name of Carrie Blakinger, who is well known for the important journalistic work that she has done uh, uh, writing about prisoners and the prison system and the need for, for widespread and, and profound reforms of our prison system. Carrie Blakinger writes uh, her work with a particular experience having herself been behind bars, uh, doing time in New York State uh, for drugs. And that experience is at the heart of her extraordinary memoir called Corrections in Ink, a memoir, in which she chronicles for us uh, what is, in a sense, uh, a a slow disintegration uh, of, of her life and the careful order of her life, but a life which she tells us at one point always included uh, a, a dark side. And it ultimately landed her in prison, and uh, she is fortunate to have managed to rebuild her life as she has. And she speaks with disarming frankness about what made that possible and the fact that uh, she had available to her because of her background uh, certain possibilities and resources that typically are not available to others who are incarcerated. So she is trying to help us understand not only her path back, but also the way in which that path is so difficult, if not altogether impossible, for so many others who find themselves incarcerated. All of that and much, much more is in this incredible book published by St. Martin's Press, again titled Corrections in Ink, a Memoir. Carrie Blakinger, we welcome you to The Morning Show. Thank you for having me. Thank you for such a great introduction. <laughs> it's an incredible book. It really, really is, and I'm not sure I even did it full justice. I want to ask you first, <laughs> before we probe into your experience and, and life and, and what you explore in this book, what was it like for you uh, on a very sort of personal, visceral level to relive so much of this, including the, the most brutal and painful chapters of what was such a, a, a rough ride. Uh, I, I'm just imagine it not to be an easy experience at all. Uh, were there things about the experience of writing about it that were, were positive, perhaps cathartics in some way? You know, I, it's funny. I think people think that writing this sort of thing will be cathartic, but I don't know. For me, I don't, I don't think it was. I mean, partly because of the distance, right? It had been something like 10 years since a lot of this happened by the time I was writing about it. And I'd written some essays about it before. Um, but, you know, I think I sort of worked through things to a point that this was that this was not cathartic and catharsis was not necessarily um, what I was looking for. I think, if anything, it felt more um, redemptive, like being able to really sort of definitively take the some of the my worst missteps and some of the worst parts of my life and help shape them into something positive. And I do that every day in my work covering prisons because I'm sort of drawing on my own experience to 
you know, be the best reporter that I can be. But I think that this did that in a, in a very different way. Um, so I, I think that's something that um, I think that 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 the way in which that feels fulfilling is something that sort of changes over time. I, it's something I, I didn't realize was going to be such a part of the publication process. And it's something that I think I appreciate more as time goes on. And I hear from, you know, more people about the book. Like I just got a letter from a guy on death row today um, with his little review of my book. Um, and it, you know, it was just, it was such a kind and touching letter um, talking about the commonality of our experiences, even though, you know, we're in such, you know, we had such different incarceration experiences. Hmm. Um, and it's just so good to hear people talk about, you know, the value of, of seeing their experiences reflected in, you know, in books. There's a very touching moment, I think, in the epilogue of the book. Uh, and this is at the point when, sh- when you are out of prison, have uh, gotten your life back together, and are in the midst of doing some of this really important reporting on uh, the, the, the brutal inhumanity that is uh, so often a part of our, of our prison system. And it is writing that, that has led to some much-needed reforms. And uh, you write so touchingly, I think, about what it was like for you to hear from various people imprisoned, the vast majority of them complete strangers to you, but who were so deeply, profoundly appreciative for the work that you've done. And just kind of the, 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 the simple ways in which people would just find even sort of simple scraps of paper to just jot a few sincere words of thanks to you. Uh, just the way you write about it, we can tell that was incredibly moving for you. Yeah, although to be clear, most of the time when I get jail mail, it is not um, scraps of paper. A lot of it's pretty ornate. Um, I've gotten some really um, wonderful letters and cards from uh, from people in prisons, in prisons that I've written about. Um, and sometimes it's just it's a specific thank you for a specific story I've written that impacted their unit or their lives. And sometimes it's just very general, like, hey, thank you for generally writing these kinds of stories that amplify our voices and tell people about what's really going on inside. And, you know, I've gotten, I've gotten such a wild array of things. You know, I've got some, you know, handmade pop-up cards. I've got some sort of large abstract art that people have sent. Um, recently, someone sent me um, some rings that this guy this guy made some rings some guys on death row made me some rings and a bracelet out of the little metal chains that they keep their ids on and they knotted them together with i think strings from a commissary bag so um yeah it's just the the ways in which people show me their appreciation is just stunning and and wonderful I also want to just ask you quickly about something that you you say at the outset, which is that uh, many of the names are changed in your book, including all of the staff members that you write about and most of the prisoners. Um, Can you just, first of all, help us kind of understand that distinction and the need to change so many names, but in a few cases actually not changing the names? Yeah, sure. So this is definitely a thing that I had to sort of give a lot of thought to. Um, I think it's pretty standard in memoirs to be 
changing names. In my case, I ended up um, reaching out to a lot of the people, even those whose names I did change, to, to fact check things and sort of make sure that they agreed with um, my memories and perceptions of things, that it all cohered with theirs. Um, I didn't want there to be any unpleasant surprises any more than, than need be. Um, but, you know, ultimately, I, I think part of it just from a, a legal standpoint, you know, it, it's probably um, better to not, for instance, uh, depict people doing illegal things, you know, because um, there's some people that I did drugs with, you know, that are doing a lot of illegal activities that I obviously changed their names. But in terms of the people that I did time with or that I met in prison, I mean, I think a lot of staff don't want to be named for security reasons. I think a lot of um, prison staff have, um, you know, concerns about being found or identified. And, you know, I was trying to be respectful of that. They, they signed up for a job. They're not trying to, they didn't sign up to be in someone's book. And similarly with the people I met behind bars, you know, they were sentenced to time. They weren't sentenced to being, you know, sort of publicly outed in a book. Um, so that was definitely part of my thought process, but also, I mean, there's no, there's no reason to have people like this be the first thing that comes up when you Google someone. I don't want to be the person that is preventing someone from getting the job. And, you know, I, there were a number of people that said they were okay with being named that I actually didn't name anyways. And Part of that is because I feel like as someone in media, like I had a pretty good appreciation as someone in media and someone who's been written about a lot. Um, I had a pretty good appreciation of what that means and what sort of um, fallout there can be and how long that stuff really lasts. And I think that someone who hasn't been the subject of national media repeatedly um, has a very different perspective on that. So I just, I don't know, I kind of wanted to be protective of some of my friends. And, you know, I, I, as a result, decided that, you know, I wasn't going to name people with one exception, which was Stacey Burnett. Um, and she is, um, you know, she's also been around media some and written about some, and she's been public about her past. And I, I don't think that anyone else in there has been in in the way that she has and she's also doing work in the advocacy space like very publicly with her name so she is one person that i was like it probably is actually beneficial to her and i'm fairly confident she really deeply understands what it means to be named in a book like this right so, whereas some people might they might say go ahead use my book i don't care or use my name i don't care right. not understanding the perhaps the ramifications or consequences of that yeah exactly um so, yeah, and then some of the people that I – the other people I named were people that have, have since died, um, you know, and in some cases I, – I, I mean, I, I could have really gone either way on that. But um, in some cases it was also like those people were people that were publicly linked to me, so it wasn't – like there was sort of no point in, um, in not naming some of them. Like some of my exes, you know, that have since died um, – actually had two of my exes die of overdoses during the pandemic. I, was, I wasn't in touch with either of them, but as I was, you know, writing the book and finishing it up, um, two of the, you know, people who were prominently in it both ended up dying. Hmm. Um, but, you know, I, I, I named both of, both of them and, you know, several of the people that are no longer around. Um, so, yeah, I don't know. It was, t this was definitely like quite a process trying to figure out 
where to draw the line because I felt like if nothing else, it was really important to be consistent. Um, and I also discovered that it is so much harder to come up with an alias for people than you would think. Like this seems like a really easy task, right? Um, but you, it turns out like you want to preserve the sort of sense of a name, you know, like, um, I don't know, like you, you don't want to, you know, if you've got like Brandy with like, I don't know, an IE, like that doesn't feel the same as like, I don't know, Samantha. <laughs> like, so, so like there's, you, you sort of want a name that feels the same that, you know, would have, would have made sense for someone in that age range and coming from that part of the country, um, you know, and you, you want to sort of reflect that. Um, but then you also want to be careful um, not to make it seem like your names are tokenizing. Um, and also then you just have this like logistical problem. I, at one point, named, had like three perfect names for people that all get introduced at different times. And then they all end up in a scene together. And I'm like, oh, my God, everybody's name in this scene starts with an S. Hmm. <laughs> <laughs> or like you end up with stupid things where you have two people's names rhyming. You know, and I, I hadn't ever uh, realized how difficult it would be to come up with alternate names for people until I actually did it. Fascinating. We're speaking with Carrie Blakinger about her incredible new book called Corrections in Ink, a memoir, a book which she uh, movingly dedicates to all the people I met inside and the ones still there today. And of course, by inside, she is talking about the people she met uh, behind bars uh, of the correctional system, uh, of which she was an inmate uh, for a time. Uh, we should talk about your own background and the fact that your background made you uh, a very noteworthy uh, person when you got in trouble and ultimately got arrested uh, in a way that when uh, other people get arrested, it scarcely causes a stir outside of themselves and their own uh, inner circle. But but it was, in a sense, big news and a striking surprise uh, when you got into such trouble and ultimately were arrested, although in some ways for anybody who really knew what was going on inside of you, uh, it was probably not a surprise at all. First of all, tell us about... Uh, your 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 years growing up in the heart of Amish County, a country in Lancaster, Pennsylvania, uh, and the very ordinary framework in which much of your childhood was lived out, but the way in which uh, things began to take a, a difficult turn. Yeah, sure. So I uh, I mean, like you said, I I grew up in Lancaster, Pennsylvania, which is sort of famously known as Amish country and I had a pretty normal upbringing um I I mean normal sort of suburban upper middle class life and the only thing that sort of stood out was that I was a competitive figure skater from a pretty young age I started around eight or nine I guess and which you uh, remind us is actually relatively late for serious figure skaters but nevertheless yeah. that's when you started but you managed to achieve yeah, some success were, yeah, there were a lot of um, a lot of the girls that I skated with who had started when they were like two, three, four. Um, but yeah, I I started in elementary school and by middle school, you know, I was I was 
skating every day at a rink that was about 45 minutes away. And then by high school, I was um, I was training at University of Delaware, which was at the time one of the most elite training centers in the country. And that was about, I don't know, an hour and a half away. So every day I leave school around 10 or 11 in the morning and go to the rink and train until five or six and, um, you know, do my homework in the car on the way back. And that was sort of my whole life. And I skated pairs, which is where the guy throws you around and it looks all dangerous and stuff. And And you liked um, that danger. I mean, you, you tell us that was one of the things that drew you to that. Yeah. I mean, I was, I was pretty good as a single skater, but I knew that I, did not have the raw jumping talent to be making it uh, to nationals as a single skater. Um, But I did have the willingness to sort of endanger myself doing these, um, you know, dangerous looking pair moves. And, you know, that was the way in which I could best um, stand out or sort of achieve the Mm -hmm. skating success that I wanted. Um, and so, yeah, I ended up skating pairs and we competed at nationals twice in 2000 and 2001. And, um, then after our second year at nationals, my then partner decided to branch out and find another partner. And at that point I just kind of fell apart. Hmm. Um, you know, skating was my whole life at that point. And, you know, it was also a sport where there's so many more women than men that, you know, he could find another partner the next day. And for me, it could be weeks or months or never. And after a few months, it became apparent that I was probably at the least going to have to take a season off. And I felt like my career was over at that point Mm. because, you know, skating is a career where you have a pretty clear age limits in that, you know, you can't do this forever. You're not going to be competitive in your mid to late twenties. Usually. Um, I mean, sometimes you are, but typically your career is, you know, largely over by then, or at least it was at that point. And, um, you know, I felt like time was ticking and the season off was going to be the end. Hmm. And I just completely fell apart. Skating was, my whole identity and I just sort of didn't know it was the glue that was holding me together and I I didn't know what to do without it. Right. You write at one point, I could see my future disintegrating before my eyes. And, and ultimately you said, I decided I would give in to the decay and we'll talk about what that, that meant. I want to backtrack for a moment. You tell us you started skating at the age of seven or eight and you tell us, in kind of another chapter where you're not even really talking so much about your skating, that around the age of nine, you started having trouble making friends. You write, it seemed I'd hit the age when mean girls are just learning how mean they could be. And you, you found yourself really at sea with, with, with your peers. And, and, and it sounds like that's part of what, what, what made skating, in a sense, a refuge for you that out on the ice, it wasn't about any of that. And it was uh, for all the challenges there were in terms of trying to learn how to land that double axle and so on, uh, it, was, it, it was deeply appealing for you to be out on that ice. Um, but that also, that unhappiness at this period is when you first began to uh, understand self-destruction and self-destructive practices. Uh, 
tell our listeners about when this began and the connection that you see between those early self-destructive behaviors and what ultimately engulfed your life. Well, I mean, I, I think that some of my sort of first forays into into self-destruction were in the form of eating disorders. I um, had pretty intense eating disorders through middle school and especially in high school. Um, I was anorexic and extremely bulimic. And at the same time, I was also extremely depressed and at times suicidally depressed. And, um, you know, I, I think that all sort of contributed to me being pretty unstable, pretty volatile. And when my skating career finally fell apart, um, I think I was just in a, in a much more volatile place than it might have appeared from the outside. Although, you know, like you alluded to, I think, you know, the people that knew me better were aware of that. Um, but, you know, I think in some ways it had the same sort of obsessive, um, obsessive underpinnings as the, you know, drugs I got into later. I was, you know, I, I mean, for me, eating disorders had a, a lot of obsessive, ten- wrapped up in a lot of obsessive tendencies. And um, when I went to heroin, um, I was obs- I was just, you know, swapping in something else and I was obsessive about heroin instead. Hmm. When you are describing your first forays into self-destruction, I mean, first bulimia and then cutting and then entertaining thoughts of suicide, and then, of course, uh, the even darker roads down which you traveled, uh, you, you write at one point in trying to help us understand what was going inside your, your, your mind and heart at this point in your t- life when you're maybe fifth or sixth grade, the darkness appealed, maybe I couldn't be popular, but I could be tragic. I find that so intriguing, and I suspect you're far from alone, that, that often adolescents who find themselves in a difficult situation where they are not being seen the way they might want to be seen as one of the popular kids in the in crowd will, in a sense, find an identity or a persona uh, that they can live up to <laughs> and that in in some sort of maybe twisted way fits who they are perceived to be. Uh, it's it's such an interesting thing. What, what do you think that did for you, this idea of that that you started to see yourself as potentially a, a tragic figure? And did that, in a sense, pave the way uh, for what followed? Well, I think, you know, I think to some degree that meant that even when I was doing things that would most people would sort of objectively consider bad or a failure or an extremely negative direction, it in some way could still feel like a success or like it was intentional, you know? Um, and I mean, I think you see that I talk in the, in the book, I talk a lot about, you know, sort of deciding to um, unravel or decay. And I mean, I think that, falling apart felt like less of a failure when it felt like less of a personal failure 
when I framed it to myself as if it were a choice, as if it were intentional. And I mean, I don't, I don't think that it was a choice in, in the sense that I, I think I had mental health issues and I didn't have, you know, the, the coping skills to handle some of these things better. But I think that that was how I framed it to myself. Right. I want to ask you one other thing about uh, your figure skating experience and, and some of the success which you enjoyed. And I have to say parenthetically, I'm resisting the urge to ask you dozens of questions about this because figure skating is one of my favorite sports to follow. And <laughs> I just found that aspect of your book so interesting. And, and I do think it is an important part of your story. Uh, and I don't think you would spend the time that you do talking about it and describing it if you didn't think that that it that it really right. mattered. But one of the things you 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 chronicle for us is your your struggle, your long long struggle over the course of years to learn how to land the double axle. Uh, I mean, a, a a a pretty hard jump, and it's for many that perhaps insurmountable barrier that in a sense, ends their career. But if you can learn to land the double axle, then that means that the triple jumps that are so essential uh, likely will follow then. And you ultimately do, after years of struggle, manage to learn to land your double axle. And then very quickly, you learn to land several of the tricky triple jumps uh, that are even harder than that. But at one point, as you're talking about this point in your skating career, you write, it had all come so quickly that it simply did not feel real. Every time I landed and looked down at the clean edge, it felt like a fluke, a victory I did not deserve, and it scared me. There's so much that's interesting, I think, wrapped up in that, and one of them is that, you know, you worked so hard for years to land the double axle, and these other things came, and so... It's just so interesting that nevertheless it felt like a really quick breakthrough that you hadn't earned the hard way and that somehow this was success that you did not deserve and that somehow the mantle of success did not rest comfortably on your shoulders. I wonder how much you think about that to this very day and what was going on inside of your young mind that made it hard for you to accept this success that you were experiencing? Um, yeah, it's funny that you say that because I actually hadn't, I didn't quite think of it that way in terms of skating jumps, but this is something that my friends still say about me now, that, you know, I'll do something or have something successful and, you know, just be amazed that I, like, didn't deserve this. And they'll be like, but you worked really hard. And also it's really good, you know? But, um so I hadn't actually connected that to skating, but I think part of the reason that I felt that way in skating was because, and this is hard to describe. I didn't, um, I didn't like feel the jumps in my body, in my like muscle memory, like the double axle I did. But when I then got a bunch of triple jumps right in a row, it was like, I was just flinging myself into the air and landing them. And I didn't have the same sense of them in my muscles as I did with other jumps that I that I'd gotten. And so it sort of felt like, I don't know how I'm doing this. Mm-hmm. Um, like dumb luck, maybe. <laughs> yeah, but dumb luck every time. And yeah. it was just, you know, I was just like, is this what these jumps are going to feel like now? Like, I'm just, 
every time just throwing myself in the air and somehow magically landing. Um, <laughs> and it felt, I think that was part of why. So it was a little more specific than something that is my general tendency in life. But yes, it is also my general tendency in life to, to, uh, you know, to feel like I haven't earned my successes. Right. Well, and of course, at one point, I think it's in the very first chapter of the book, you describe yourself at that point in the in time when things have pretty much disintegrated. You'd nevertheless describe yourself as, I am tightly wound, a taut rubber band of perfectionism and self-destruction. And so ultimately, as you've already said, uh, your partner decides to dissolve your partnership. You are unable to find a new partner and uh, are, are really feeling at sea, emotionally devastated. And uh, your parents, uh, not knowing what else to do with their inconsolable daughter, send you off to Harvard Summer School. And there, in the freedom of that scenario, things uh, very quickly uh, begin to dissolve for you. Uh, just briefly describe that kind of freedom that you were experiencing and how quickly you began to explore some really dark and self-destructive paths. Yeah. Um, I mean, after, so after my, uh, my skating fell apart, I, um, well, as my skating career was falling apart, I had several months of where I was just sobbing every day and you know my parents thought that having me go to Harvard summer school would be a good way to help sort of set me in a more positive direction or give me something else to focus on and there was a rink near there so I was going to be able to still walk to a rink and still skate if I wanted um and so it all sounded good in theory because you know I, I wanted to go to a good college like this is something I've been really raised to value education so this was something I aspired to but when I got there, I mean, what ended up happening was it, that meant that the first time that I went from this sort of very strict, structured world of skating to having basically no supervision coincided with the point at which I was already beginning to fall apart. And, you know, it seems like I had no hope for the future in skating. And the thing that had been holding me together was disintegrating. So I turned very quickly to just a very dark place. Um, and I think I smoked pot once and then did ecstasy and then, you know, went right to heroin. The ex- um, so the escalation happened very, very quickly, in other words. Yeah, yeah. It wasn't like this was some accidental, like, oh, I smoked pot and pot some gateway drug and suddenly I wake up and I'm addicted to heroin. It was not like that. Like, I was in a very self-destructive place, and I was not using drugs as an escape so much as a slow means to death. Mm. You uh, ultimately, uh, and you tell us, it's it's kind of sketchy in terms of did you, when you return home, did you then decide to run away from home, or did your parents kick you out, or what? But whatever happened in that blur, you were on your own. And one of the things you write that I think is so intriguing is that you were so surprised by what it would feel, what it would feel like to be homeless. And you write so, you write so eloquently about uh, what the, the, what the profound pain of 
having no safe place to go when the sun goes down. Ultimately, you found a place with a strange group of people called the family. Um, Describe who they were. I wish we had more time to talk about them. We'll have to leave it to our listeners to explore this in your book. But briefly describe your experience with the so-called family. Yeah, sure. So when I was homeless, I was hanging out in the Harvard Square area. And at that point, there were a lot of uh, homeless punks that hung out in an area that was called the pit. Uh, it was just a little sort of brick amphitheater kind of thing. And um, some of the ones that I met there all lived under this parking garage near the Alewife train station. And um, the people that sort of ran that called themselves the family. And it was actually like, it was a, like I don't know, a social structure of people who were homeless. And there were nobles and, like, a king and a queen. And, like, there was this whole hierarchy, and you had to get permission from them to stay there. And, um, and you know, and I did. I was not uh, part of the hierarchy. I was not a royal, as they called it. But um, they let me stay there. And it was, on the one hand, it was safe from some outside threats. You know, like, you know, police didn't tend to mess with you if you're in there as opposed to, you know, just on your own on the street or whatever. And, uh outside folks being predatory. Um, You know, they protected me from an angry pimp one time. But, um, you know, there was still, I mean, you're still also, I I was 17 and around a bunch of um, people of varying ages, including, you know, a number of older men on drugs. And, you know, there's still a certain amount of of threat inherent in that situation. Um, So there's limits to the protection that, that the family could offer in that mm. scenario. But um, it's so wild looking back. Like, they, it's, a, it's a, just such a bizarre thing. I'm like, it's one of those parts of my story that, like, if I hadn't lived it, I would be like, is that real? Right. I was going to um, say, it sounds like something out of a movie script, but it is something. A some... very weird movie, though. <laughs> yeah, like, right. Exactly. This, is, this is a real weird movie. Absolutely. <laughs> Well, at, at any rate, I'm I'm glad you describe it as as you do, and of course, we ultimately track your 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 disintegration, and you are really able to tell us so much about what that felt like. And interestingly enough, you were still writing through all of this, still journaling, and you even have a few pages, although much of that journaling, the result of that journaling, has been lost. But you tell us there are a few pages that you still have that. Uh, that help document, in a sense, this sad uh, descent. Well, ultimately, you are are arrested. Your name and face are splashed all over the place because you are a former figure skater and a former uh, gifted student who uh, finds herself uh, ultimately, of course, uh, behind bars. And, of course, this is what so much of your book focuses on, is your experience behind bars, the experience that you had and others incarcerated, and in particular, women incarcerated. And you tell us that so much of the system uh, does not seem to have been designed with women in mind, and that there are all kinds of indignities that are, uh, that are part of this experience that those who design prisons seem not to have even thought about, and and that many who oversee prisons today also do not seem mindful of. Yeah, you know, I've, I've 
I mean, there are so many ways in which I think prisons sometimes unintentionally and sometimes it seems very systematically um, rob people of their dignity and their humanity. And I think that this is the sort of thing that's really easy to blow off. Um, people love to say, I mean, I, I, I do a lot of TikToks about prison and people love to say in the comments, you know, don't do the time if you can't do the crime. Um, which, I mean, obviously that's a perspective that I can, <laughs> I have many thoughts on. But the thing is, when when you take away someone's dignity, I think there's long-term consequences to that for us and for them. You know, to be the sort of society that is willing to do this to people in the name of vengeance or punishment and sort of what that says about us. But also, I think that robbing people of their dignity in basic and unnecessary ways um result in people that are not better equipped when they get out of prison. And what I mean is that, you know, prison in theory, among other things, should serve a public safety purpose. Like we expect at a bare minimum that prisons will make us safer. That's like kind of why they exist. But if you put people, um, all of the people that you think are bad people together in one place for a long time and you know, tr treat them like animals and treat them in ways that undermine their, their basic ability to see themselves as people with dignity, they're actually not going to come out as, um, you know, better well-adjusted people who are more equipped to live a law-abiding life. And that should be really obvious, but it seems like, you know, in the interest of sort of cruelty or puritanism or whatever you want to call it, it's a, it's a, it's a perspective that is um, often overlooked by the by people who are making decisions about how these correction systems are run. Absolutely. I, I want to read a, a really powerful passage and, and, and have you expand on, on what these words are, are suggesting. You write at one point, behind bars, there are no rules. Sure, there, are, there is a rule book and there are things you cannot do, but when it matters, no one is watching. All the futility, the small cruelties, the refusal to see us as fully human, it was not a flaw in the system. It was the system. What are you really talking about there? <laughs> I mean, I think sort of all, all of the things that I'm getting at here, that I was getting at in the last answer, that... Having, you know, the, the way that the system is set up, it routinely dehumanizes people and takes away their dignity. And, you know, it is not, this is not something that the system cares about. These are not one-offs or flukes. That is just literally how it is supposed to work. And it almost... It is is seen as unremarkable or just something that is part of this world and uh and it's kind of shocking to think of the way in which uh that is accepted and of course much of your book chronicles exactly what we're talking about in in in, in really painful uh, painful detail things you experienced things you saw other women experience who were uh, incarcerated with you and things we wouldn't even think about like for instance uh, I think this was when you were still at the Tompkins County Jail and you talked about the constant shuffling 
of of prisoners into different parts of the jail uh, to hide the overcrowding that was occurring there. Uh, really disorienting. And just when you were making connections with others, then this shuffle would occur. And you were, it's like you were being moved around like game pieces on a game board. And uh, I mean, that's not the, the most terrible kind of example, but one that would probably never even occur to most of us that would be part of this. Um, I hate because of time to kind of leap ahead to how this resolves. But of course, ultimately, you are able to get out of prison. And beyond that, you are ultimately able to rebuild your life to a remarkable extent and uh, do all this important reporting uh, about life behind bars and, uh, and, and bring about such, such important good. You, you write later in the book, I had the willingness to move on and to change, but also the tools to do so. And these I cannot give to them, meaning others who are still behind bars or, or maybe out of prison now and trying to rebuild their lives. What kind of tools are you talking about that made such a difference in your life in being able to sort of pull yourself back out of the abyss, tools that are not available to others? Um, so I think that part of it was that I had, I was very near to finishing a degree. And I think that, you know, having an, an, having a college degree is obviously helpful, but when I got out, I also had, um, a place to stay. I didn't need to live in a shelter. I had, um, you know, I, I had friends and, and family and support. So when I was able to find a job that required driving, I was able to get a hand-me-down car from my parents. I mean, it was, it actually died very quickly, but, but, but like I, I was able to get transportation to get to work. Before I had a car, I was dating someone who was able to drive me to jobs. Um, just the sort of very basic, I, I don't even mean like the emotional support. That's like a whole other thing, but just the very basic reentry support in terms of having the resources to, um, you know, to finish school, to have a degree, to get a job, to get to a job. Um, you know, to have a place to stay that was a, you know, that, that, did, that was largely free from negative influences and drugs, um, to know that I was, you know, going to be able to eat and didn't have to worry about food. I mean, there are just some really basic things that um, I had access to. And on the one hand, although they are basic, they're really expensive. Like, Successful reentry support is an expensive proposition, and um, I, I was very lucky that I had that. And that's not even touching on the issues of, um, you know, racial and class privilege that make succeeding in all of those things so much easier. That is something you spend a great deal of time talking about, and I'm glad that you do. Racial disparity and uh, all of the ways in which. Uh, racism, both overt and uh, just beneath the surface, play out in really uh, important ways. You talk about even basic things like when one is part of the incarceration system, that how so often you are told very, very little about that world and, uh, and how it is set up and what's coming next and how to function and navigate and often is from other women. I mean, if you're lucky, you, you, you find yourself with other women who know that system inside out and are able to help you navigate it. Uh, As you look back and look now at 
uh, our prison system. Uh, what are the reforms where you would have us begin, I mean, that are of primary importance that would not only make life uh, more bearable for those who are incarcerated, but also would, would, would help uh, those incarcerated uh, find a, a path to the redemption, if we want to say, say it that way. Where would you begin when it comes to this massive and important issue? Um, I'm laughing because uh, I get these sorts of questions so much and it's so hard to be like, how would you solve prison? You know, because that's basically what it's asking. um, (laughs) I, um, you know, I mean, and it's also difficult, I should say, because as a reporter who covers prisons, like I can only go so far and sort of saying what my opinions are on these things, because it's just not, you know, it's just an ethical thing that um, journalists aren't supposed to be. Um, sharing certain kinds of opinions on subjects they cover. But, um, you know, I, I, I will say that at this point, one of the sort of basic issues is that there's a mismatch between the size of our prison system and the amount of money that we put into it. And um, whether that means that we need fewer prisoners or we need to spend more money on the prisoners who are there, one of those things um, should probably happen. Um, and what this means when when we don't adequately um, fund our prisons is that you know people are getting subpar medical care. Um, you know people are um, you know not having adequate access to basic hygiene supplies. They're not getting college classes or academic or vocational classes that they need to have the best chance of success afterwards. Um, but it's also a lot more basic than that. In, so I'm, I'm in Texas now, and, you know, in Texas, the prison system is vastly understaffed at the moment. It's something like, I don't know, two-thirds staffed, I think. Maybe, maybe it's a little higher than that. But when you have that many officer positions that are vacant, it means that really basic things don't get tended to. Like, people aren't getting meals at a consistent time. Sometimes they're not getting let out to shower for weeks on end. Um, you know, mail can be very delayed. They're not necessarily getting let outside for, you know, for, for rec that they're entitled to, to get, you know, to see sunlight or fresh air. Um, and, I mean, these are all things that, you know, go towards the point that I talked about before, about, you know, maintaining dignity and treating people like humans so that they are best equipped to be, um, you know, helpful or productive community members upon their release. And of course, that's ultimately what we all want. I mean, I can't imagine a, a sensible, civilized person not wanting that. Uh, whatever your political stripe might be, or however you might get hung up on certain details, I think ultimately you are spelling out what all of us should want uh, as as citizens in, in our society. And uh I think your book gives us a tremendous amount to think about. And, uh, and I also appreciate that it lays out much of what you tried to do as a journalist in telling this important story and the difference that has been made uh, in, in, in the lives of prisoners already. But one hopes that it is just the beginning. The book, again, is titled Corrections in Ink, a memoir. It's published by St. Martin Press and the author, Carrie Blakinger. 
Gary Blakinger, we've just scratched the surface in this uh, incredible book and all that it offers up. I hope those who have heard this interview will seek out your book and uh, explore it uh, in, in much greater detail than we were able to explore today. But I thank you so much for your time, and I certainly thank you for giving the world this important book and your other important writing. Thank you so much, and best wishes to you. Thanks for having me.